please be seated. We've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a series of teachings that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount because of where it happened geographically. He was on a mountaintop hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And in his teachings, Jesus has been addressing not only the issues of action, what we do, but he's moved us to deeper, deeper areas in what we actually think. Not only what we do, but what we think. It moves beyond just our actions, but our mind and our hearts. And today we're going to look at a passage that is very relevant to our world today. It's called, the title of the sermon is Emergency Surgery. Emergency Surgery. And I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 5, Matthew the 5th chapter as we continue. Starting with verse 27. It's on page 786 if you're looking for it in the Bible, in the rack in front of you, or it'll be on the projection as well. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body for your whole, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus said some pretty radical things. And I want to acknowledge that. Verses 29 and 30 sound pretty extreme. And we'll get to those verses, but I want to talk first about the first two verses, 27 and 28. And then we'll get into the, the understanding, hopefully the understanding of the last two verses. We're going to look at the problem and we're going to look at the solution. Very simple, problem and solution. And the problem that Jesus raises here, very relevant, is adultery or immorality. Now, if we're going to look at adultery, we must first define what adultery means. What does it mean? There was a prevailing definition in Jesus' day. This was the culture and the area that they were in. It was accurate, but it was limited. There was, then there was Jesus' definition, which expands it to a deeper level and gives it a whole new perspective. So let's start by talking about the prevailing definition of adultery. Prevailing definition. The Jews of Jesus' day had their own definition of adultery. It was narrow. It was very precise. Because they had reduced sin to outward observable actions. Like many today, it's only wrong if it hurts somebody else. That was their idea. And first was the locus or the location of adultery. And number one, it was within marriage. So when they were talking about adultery, they were talking about adultery within marriage. This was the most obvious and most accepted definition of Jesus' day. According to this definition, adultery was marriage breaking or the breaking of the marriage covenant. 
See, when a man and a woman marry, they enter into a covenant, a covenant, an agreement, a contract, and a sacred trust, vowing to remain faithful to one another, forsaking all others. And adultery, in this definition, is the breaking of that marriage vow. And of course, in the Jew's mind, that was only in the realm of action. Only action. Think whatever you will. Just don't act on it. That was their philosophy. And of course, Jesus is going to correct their, their understanding of what that was. Next, we look at adultery outside of marriage. Adultery is more than just sin of a married person. They thought it was just having to do with married persons. Jesus does not speak in verse 28 of someone else's wife, but he speaks of a woman, a woman. A scholar named Morris writes this. He says, in the ancient world, generally it was held that a married man could have sexual adventures as long as they did not involve a married woman, which would mean violating the rights of her husband. A woman, however, was expected to have no such relations. She should be chaste before marriage and faithful after it. And the command Jesus cites makes no distinction between those. Jesus does not limit adultery to just married persons. Adultery is also the practice of intimacy without commitment. Intimacy without commitment. And by commitment, I mean marriage, marriage. Not a commitment of living together, not just an exclusive relationship. It's an actual marriage relationship. Living together and sleeping together outside of the marriage commitment is rampant today. In fact, in post-Christian Europe, it's the standard. It's the standard. People just move in together. They don't, a lot of times, they don't even think about marriage. They just live together, have children together, cohabit. And of course... That's the picture as the norm in sitcoms and TV shows and movies. Even nice, clean movies that we like to go to is cohabiting and sleeping together is the norm. This, adult, this is adultery because it's intimacy without commitment. And I'll be honest with you, over the years we've, we've seen this happen gradually on television, and now what we recoil at is the portrayals of of same-sex relationships and ads and TV shows and movies. But we've become calloused to the standard immorality fair. The sexual relationship was designed by God to be experienced only in the context of a marital commitment. Several years ago, I had an unmarried couple in my office. They were Christians, and they attended church. And they said to me... Um, we're living together, and we are sleeping together, but since neither of us is married, we don't believe we're committing adultery. They went on to question whether the word for immorality or pornia, pornia or fornication applied to them. And they asked the question, what is marriage anyway? We're, we're committed to each other. We're faithful to one another. We love each other. What does it matter whether the state sees us as married or not? We feel committed. They felt married. They felt they were married in God's eyes. So what makes a person married? Is it feelings? Is it, I feel married? 
This couple had a grave misunderstanding of the marriage covenant. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it was written in the context of Jewish culture and practice. And marriage was elevated as the most sacred of all institutions. Marriage was used as an example for the relationship between God and his people. What made a couple married? What made a couple married? Words. Say words? Yeah, what makes a couple married? Words. Words of institution spoken by someone vested with God's authority. Words of institution spoken by someone invested with God's authority. God's representative under God's authority says the words. How important are spoken words? How important are spoken words? Well, what makes a person the president of the United States? Words. Now, the election happened, you say, it's words. It's an oath of office spoken with words. What makes a person a judge? An oath of office, words, spoken words. What makes a person on trial, innocent or guilty? We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Spoken words. Not just anyone can use words for that life-changing effect. Only those that are given authority to carry that out. How? By written words, laws, and ordinances that give authority to words. Everything, everything God does is by words. Words, by his word. He spoke and creation came into being. He spoke and there was this great flood. He spoke and judgment came. He spoke and we are given grace. He spoke and there was salvation and we are, are saved. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, the word. How do, we, how do we become saved? How do we enter into that relationship with God? How do, we, how do we obtain salvation? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. Words. Baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism. How does that happen? How is it effective? Words. Communion. This is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Words. Marriage. I pronounce you husband and wife. Words. It's words. Words by the proper authority. Intimacy does not make someone married. The commitment entry into the marriage covenant with spoken words and intimacy outside of the marriage covenant, therefore, is immoral. It's adultery. That includes all. Let's look at Roman number, number three. All immorality or sexual sin. All immorality or sexual sin. Jesus affirms these definitions and does not contradict them. Now, that's the general sense of what adultery is and how marriage is entered into. But Jesus goes further than just the, this part of it. He expands it. Jesus' definition. He says, you've heard this. He says, but I tell you. And in verse 28, he says, 
I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus expands. True to form, Jesus expands the prevailing view of adultery from just actions to thoughts, desires, and intentions. Whoa. They, they weren't ready for this. There seems to be a sequence for sin. Many of us would say as a religious of Jesus' days, I'm glad I'm good. I've never committed adultery. I've never committed rape. I've never done anything like that. Well, the whole teaching of Jesus here moves sin from the external observable action to the internal secret places of our heart and mind. Wow. What's the sequence of sin? What's the sequence of sin? It says everyone who looks on a woman. It starts with C. C, the eyes. It starts with the eyes. And in today's world, our eyes are assaulted continually with all kinds of images. Billboards, magazine ads, television commercials, internet ads. A lot of them have to do with sex. Sex sells. Sex sells cars, beers, soft drink, clothes, cologne, perfume, foods, vacation cruises. And we're bombarded constantly with images. Which means we need to be very selective and careful what we allow our eyes to see. Some things are just going to be there, boom, present themselves. Seeing is not sin. Number two in the sequence is think. Think, which has to do with the mind. To contemplate on, to dwell on. It's the second look. You cannot always control the first look. It's the second look that gets us into trouble. The sin of, now just before, just clarification, the sin of adultery can begin in the mind quite apart from the eyes. It can happen in the mind without the eyes. But the usual sequence is seeing first. See, then think. Then it moves on to number three, want. Want, that's in the realm of the heart, the heart. Desire, verse 28 says, to lust for her, which is looking with intent to possess. And even if the desire that is birthed in this situation never culminates in action, it is still sin. Still sin. People think, it's okay for me to desire to fantasize. I'm not doing anything. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says we are doing something. And it's sin. It's adultery. The eyes are a powerful entry point for sin. Just realize it. Our eyes are a powerful entry point. That's why Job wrote in 31, said in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He made a covenant with my eyes. I made a covenant with my eyes. Powerful statement. I'm not going to look lustfully. Tasker writes this. He says, what he is saying is that God's demands in these matters are far more comprehensive and exacting than current interpretations of them by the scribes. Jesus took it to a totally different level. Murder, he insists, has its birth in anger fostered by an uncontrolled spirit of revenge. Similarly, adultery is but the final expression of lustful thoughts 
harbored in the imagination and fed by the illicit contemplation of the object of desire so that the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh cannot be disassociated. And this is a problem for men. It's a problem for women. Our heart is who we really are as a person, and we, we own it. We own it. Where does sexual sin begin? In the heart of people moving to action. That's one of the reasons pornography is so dangerous. Dangerous. Images entice. We see with the eyes. We think with the mind. We want with the heart. And pornography draws through the eyes. And you know what? The eye can never be satisfied. The eye can never be satisfied. It always wants more. Always wants more. And today, all it takes is a computer, smartphone, or iPad, just a click of the mouse, in the privacy of home, or at work, or in the car. Is it wrong to view pornography? Jesus says, yes. Yes, it is. The lure of it has desire, lust, already committing adultery. I had somebody say to me once, it, it can't be wrong. I mean, computer images are, it's just codes of ones and zeros. It's just ones and zeros. So that screen picture that I see, it's just ones and zeros. There can't be anything wrong with looking at that. It's not the ones and zeros. It's what happens in our hearts that makes those computer codes sin. What do we do with that image? That image. The number of people addicted to pornography has skyrocketed with the advent of the Internet. Many Internet startup companies have had a hard time making it, but not pornography companies, pornography sites. Billions and billions of dollars. See, think, and want. Number four, we have the act. Act. The, these are sins of all kinds. But this sin that Jesus is talking about was sin long before it gets to the action stage. Whatever we contemplated was in our minds was sin long before we took action. Long before we took action. And fifthly, there's addiction. Addiction. Research from those who have studied addictions of all types will tell us, and I've read this, it's harder to recover from sexual addiction, addiction to pornography, than to recover from addictions of nicotine, alcohol, coke, or heroin, or any kind of drug. Sexual addiction is more powerful than any drug. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Ulysses and the sirens comes from Greek mythology. Greek mythology tells the story of Ulysses and the sirens. In the ancient Greek islands, there was an island inhabited by creatures called sirens. Sirens. They were beautiful creatures that sang this song that when you heard it, you were irresistibly drawn to the island and you could not leave. And it meant that you were going to be stuck there and ultimately you were going to die. So if you heard that siren song, you were drawn in, and it was going to be death. 
Guaranteed. Nobody had survived hearing the siren song. Ulysses, as the myth goes, wanted to defeat this desire. So he put wax in all of his sailors' ears so they couldn't hear anything and had them tie him to the mast of the ship and he instructed them, no matter what I do or say, do not let me go. Don't set me free under any circumstances. Then they set out and sailed past this island. Ulysses wanted to be the only one to hear the siren's song and survive. We all want to be the only one that samples illicit pleasure without becoming addicted and destroyed. And many people think, it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me. The eyes are never satisfied. Appetites are never quenched. Those are the sequences of sin. Sequences of sin. So what are the results of sin? Let her be. The results of sin. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's a great, that's a grave warning. The whole body in hell? That's talking about God's judgment. And the question is, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk? for that. So we've looked at the problem of adultery. Let's look at the solution. What's the solution? Emergency surgery. Emergency surgery. Now, is Jesus recommending that we physically maim ourselves? No. No. He's drawing a parallel and showing how drastically needed is a solution so that we don't get destroyed. Now, by the way, those of you that don't believe in hell, Jesus talked more about hell than heaven. But that's another story. He does not want us to go. He wants to. Hell was, was manufactured and put together for the Satan and his angels. We're destined for heaven. That's where he wants us. But it's real. It's real. But he said it's better for you. And it's, the, the contrast is so obvious. It'd be, it would be better if you lose one eye and not go to hell. Or lose one hand and not go to hell. Because he wants us to be in heaven. So what's the solution? First of all, cut it out. Cut it out. A radical illustration to make a radical point. If your right eye makes you stumble. In other words, whatever the entry point for that temptation, cut it out. Not physically maiming, but if you are tempted through your eyes, images, visually, cut out those images. If you are stumbled by something you do, your right hand, cut it off. Quit that activity. Cut it out. Perform that kind of emergency surgery before it's too late. Jesus is not advocating physical maiming, but ruthless self-denial. Ruthless self-denial. Cut it out. If you're watching a football game on TV and they sell all these things with sex, cut it out. If you watch sitcoms and their sex and verbal situations, cut it out. Evening TV shows causes you to think in unholy ways, cut it out. 
Video games, soap operas, internet pornography. Cut it off. Cut off the access. Cut it out. Radical surgery, emergency surgery. There's such a contrast between what we see on TV today and what we saw years ago. It's been gradual. I remember watching Leave it to Beaver. Okay? Shows how old I am. Leave it to Beaver. And the only bedroom scene was mom and dad in bed discussing issues of children. What are we doing? That's, that was it. Mom and dad married, just talking. Today, it's boyfriend and girlfriend waking up together in bed in the morning, getting up to have breakfast. TV has normalized that behavior normalized it and we've seen it so often so much that we don't object to it anymore it's just out there and let me say something today people and I'm talking about young people but I'm talking about many other people as well view romance only by what they've seen in the movies or on TV many people the only way they can picture romance is they've pictured it on TV or in the movies. And that's what they're looking for. Cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. Cut it out. Emergency surgery. Secondly, letter B. How do we deal with it? Crucify it. What? Kill it. What does that mean? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Our old nature, the old person, is crucified, put to death. When Jesus died, we identify with that. You're buried with Christ in baptism. The old is buried, it's gone, it's dead, has no power over you. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucify it. Kill it. Romans 6, 3 through 7 says this. Or don't you know that all of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That happens upon conversion. When we give our lives to Christ, we confess our sins and say, I'm identifying, forgive my sins, Jesus come into my life. But that crucifixion of desires needs to be killed on a daily basis. I'm crucified with Christ daily, daily. Kill it, crucify it. Those desires, put them to death. They're put to death. Expand on that. Live in that. And be raised up to life. Kill it. Identify with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And letter C, declare war. Declare war. 
2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. I'm going to say that again. They have divine power. You have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We declare war. We wage war. That's what we have. And letter D, finally, confess our sins and be forgiven. Confess our sins and be forgiven. The sooner we confess our sins, the sooner we're aware of it, we confess them, the sooner we'll get victory over that. I've talked about spiritual breathing, about breathing out the old carbon dioxide, breathing in the new oxygen, getting rid of our sin, breathing in the appropriation of his forgiveness. Constantly, many times a day, we may have to confess our sins and appropriate that forgiveness. It's like breathing, spiritual breathing. Confess our sins so our sins will be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from most unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. Don't carry it past that. Don't say, well, I ask forgiveness, but I, I must be still guilty. No, he will forgive you for all your unrighteousness and you are righteous and holy before God. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But I want to say that God wants to help you. He wants to help every one of us in this battle. There's no one here that does not wrestle with their thought life and adultery in our minds, our hearts and desires. There's no one that's not tempted out there. I don't know anybody that's not. God wants to help us. The first step, admit Admit that we have a problem. Confess it to God. Ask him to deliver you. He will help you and perform emergency surgery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives us power. You're God of grace. And I thank you that Jesus was not just content to address our actions. He wanted he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to work in our lives, in our hearts. Father, we want to be people of pure hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would raise us up into that, that we would have a new awareness of those areas that we need to cut out those things that we need to cut out. And God, honestly, we don't have that power, but your Holy Spirit has that power. And I just pray, God, that our dependence would be on you and that we would be filled with the Spirit and grow closer and closer to you, become more and more like Jesus every single day as we walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?